Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I know for most of you, I am a unfamiliar face, uh, and you are all way out there, and I'm way up here. Uh, my name is Jeff Miller. Uh, I got to go through the pastoral residency with your pastor, Pastor Sam, years ago, uh, and we had two different outcomes. Sam planted a cool church, and I get to fill in for him every now and then. Uh, God's still working, and I'm excited. I am a husband uh, to my wife, Alicia. I'm a father to three children, Parker, Carson, and Sawyer. Uh, I have a golden doodle who is black. Um, and her name is Gertie. Uh, I am an MC leader over uh, in the Davenport Church. Um, I also get to read liturgy every now and then. Uh, and now my full-time job is working at Lowe's. So if you need any help with your home improvement needs, I will be that guy for you as well. Uh, but it is my joy to be with you this morning. It's been a long time since I preached. Uh, so I'm glad you're here. Most of you had no idea that I would be here. So you really took a chance just coming this morning. Uh, you could have been anywhere else in the world and yet you chose to be here. So my prayer is that God would be glorified this morning. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of verses to go through, but I think God has something for us. Uh, as we enter into what we're going to be talking about today, we've officially entered into summer. Uh, if you didn't know that, last Tuesday was the first day of summer. It greeted us with a nice 98-degree day. Uh, it was humid. It was sweaty. Uh, and there, that's just one of the many seasons we entered into uh, as we enter into summer here in the Quad Cities. It's um, second road construction season. It's, uh, we enter into sweat all day and all night season. Uh, we enter into let's argue about the thermostat season. Uh, it's also mosquito season. It's mayfly season. Uh, there are some bright spots. It's fair season. So that goes on. We've got 4th of July coming up. So there are quite a few good things, but there's probably many other seasons I'm forgetting about that maybe you're being reminded of right now that come with summer. But as summer happens at Sacred City, uh, we also enter into as a church a season of the Psalms. On both sides of the river, uh, we will both be looking at the book of Psalms for the next five or six weeks, I believe. Uh, uh, and the Psalms are many things. The Psalms are poetry. The Psalms are hymns. They're letters of lament. There's thanksgiving. Um, there are benedictions, confessions, and the list goes on. And throughout this summer, we're going to spend some time in many of those things, gleaning from the likes of David, uh, Solomon, the sons of Korah, Moses, Asaph, and others that I, whose names I cannot pronounce, but you'll get to hear them and somebody else can struggle through that. The Psalms present us you know, with a really unique opportunity to connect with God to connect with ourselves and connect with others around us. Because as you look at the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is actually some of the most real writing in scripture. And I mean that to say that as we read the book of Psalms, there are things that we can relate to right off the bat. We hear people saying things about themselves and about God and about the world around them that we can relate to. 
Right? The Psalms have this sense of people being real and saying real things to God and saying real things about the society that they find themselves in. And I think there's a comfort in that. There, there's a group of people who lived thousands of years ago who had thoughts that we have thought. They had angers that we've experienced. They have joys that, that we've walked through. They endured many of the pains that we are enduring today. And in the midst of all of them, we see that our God is reigning over and in every single one of them. And I think that's good news for us as we look at the book of Psalms. The Psalms are divided into five books. You've got uh, chapter 1 through 41. You've got chapters 42 through 72, chapters 73 through 89, chapter 90 through 106, chapters 107 through 150. And we could talk a lot more about those, but I'm not sure that you came here this morning for a history lesson. I could give you that, but I'm really not prepared to give you that. Uh, we do believe that the Psalms were uh, accumulated by Ezra um, or someone just like him. Uh, if you look through the book of Ezra and the way that he spoke, much of the, the forming of the book of Psalms looks like a person like Ezra would have accumulated them and compiled them together. Uh, but as we go through... You're going to see all kinds of different things over the course of the next five or six weeks, and I hope that uh, you would draw closer to God in the midst of it, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what Psalm 1 means to us as we start the book of Psalms, okay? So let me pray for us as we dive in this morning. Father, we are thankful uh, for yet another day on this earth. As we are sitting here in these pews and as I'm standing behind this pulpit, this is a day that was not promised to us. Last night, as we all pillowed our heads, we had no promise that we would wake up this morning. We had no promise that you would fill our breath, our, our lungs with breath, and yet here we are. So God, I pray that as we have sang this morning, as we've confessed this morning, as we've heard the good news of the gospel, as we've professed our faith, I pray that you would help us to know that that's only a work that you could do. That is, it was by no work of ourself uh, that we had anything to do with our being here today. God, I pray that as we dive into the book of Psalms today, that you would help us to uh, see your will for our life, that you would help us to look outside of ourselves a bit and see the one who's created us uh, to worship him. I pray that you would help me in my words. God, I pray that you would hide me behind this pulpit. I pray that your words would be what is heard this morning. If anything I say is an error, God, I pray that you would delete it uh, from our memories and that, that your word would reign true this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look at the whole six verses of Psalm 1, I really didn't get a whole lot of verses to dig into or jump around to. Uh, we're going to see that, that this is actually most likely intentional that the book of, of Psalm chapter 1 starts Psalms. It's intentional in the way that it was placed here. It's kind of the opening letter of what we know as the Psalter. The Psalter is a big fancy word for the, the compilation of the book of Psalms. So it's the Psalter. And it's not an accident that chapter 1 is chapter 1. As you look at the words, the words are actually pretty familiar words that we see throughout Scripture. It kind of tells us uh, about two kinds of people. It tells us of those who things will go well for, and it tells us of those who things that will not go well for. It's kind of a doorkeeper for the church, if you will. It's telling us about two types of people. Again, who things will go well for, and then who things will not go well for. Essentially, those who will bear fruit and those who will not. And I, I titled the sermon, uh, It's a Tale of Two Paths, if you will. And that's really it. We, our society doesn't really necessarily believe in two paths, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But as we look here at Psalm chapter 1, there are, there are two paths that are mentioned, two paths of life. This psalm actually sounds like uh, a lot of the book that comes after it in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, uh, which is most often referred to as wisdom literature. You see, the writer here, much like the writer of Proverbs, uh, is concerned with who you stand with, who you walk with, who you sit with. He's also concerned with where your wisdom comes from, 
And then we also get a little bit of a picture uh, of the future uh, for those that will be blessed and those that will be perished. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go along. But the three things that the psalmist seems to be concerned with is who you stand with, who you walk with, and who you sit with. And those will be some of the themes that we'll talk about this morning. So as we start in verse 1, we'll see what I would title the path to life. Okay, verse one starts very simply, blessed is the man, or if that blessed word sounds too King Jamesy for you, blessed is the man. Okay, and as we're talking about man, we're talking about mankind. So man, woman, children, that's who, God, that's who the psalmist is talking about here. Blessed is the man. Another rendering for the word blessed and one that's equally as true is the word happy. So happy is the man. And then it goes on, happy is the man who what? Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, usually if I was sharing advice for you on how to best live your life, I would tell you things to do rather than things not to do, right? If, if any of you have children or maybe even a pet, you've seen this theme of their life where you can continually tell your children what not to do, and that seems to be the things that they find themselves doing, right? Like I didn't have to teach my children how to be bad, right? I was constantly having to recorrect and redirect. And I would, I would not mention the things that they did bad. And I would kind of try to point them to the things that they should do differently or the things that they would do well or should do well. But the psalmist here just starts with it. And he says, he is happy who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. And I would also say, as I use this word happy, I'm not referring to uh, a life that is all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and flowers and any other version of happy that just think, makes you like smile all the time. That's not the version of happy that, that I'm speaking of. I, I think most of you probably know that, but I just wanted you to know that that's, that's not this. This happy that I'm talking about is the feeling that you feel deep down. A feeling of that the world is going to be okay. And even if the world is not okay, there is a feeling of rest and contentment and even peace within us. See, I think this type of happy is the happiness that allows you and I to pillow our head at night and actually fall asleep. The world doesn't offer a peace like that. The world doesn't offer a hope like that or a contentment. I really genuinely, as, as I put my head on my pillow at night, think about some of my friends and my, my coworkers and people I do life with and think, how could you possibly go to sleep with all the things going on in the world that are going on in the world today? Like how, like it must be exhausting to do that. And we'll talk about that in a bit, but this happiness should bring a rest a contentment a peace. So as the psalmist is talking about, blessed is the man, happy is the man. You could, you could fill in here, contented is the man, peaceful is the man, restful is the man. And he lists the, these three things. So in the text, we see these three specific activities that are given to describe the man or woman who is happy or blessed. These three activities actually at their root are the ideas of thinking, behaving, and belonging which if you think about are probably three of our biggest concerns as we go through life. What do we think about, what do we behave like, and who do we belong to? These things the psalmists are saying is what will lead to happiness. How you think, how you behave, and where you belong. And I want us to think maybe even a little bit deeper here because what is being talked about is something I believe we're all fighting on a daily basis, and I think even more so for us that are, that are Christians. 
You see, the, the people we do life with that, that aren't believers, I don't know that they necessarily always feel the weight of how they think or how they behave or where they belong. Now, we can see that it's a big part of our culture. That's why people dress the way they dress. That's why they go to the places they go. That's why they buy coffee at the places they buy coffee. It's, it's why they post the pictures on social media that they do. But for us as Christians, there almost seems to be a bigger weight in this. We're, we're going to get into it in just a minute. You see, because our world is constantly asking us, what do you think? They're watching how we behave, and they want to know who we belong to. They're asking, essentially, what group do you associate with? Where do you find yourself in the midst of this? Uh, over the course of my life, I've worked at several different jobs, and it seems to be every time the, the, the idea of Christianity comes up, people want to know, like, what camp of Christianity I fall into. And I'm sure some of you have probably gotten that before. It's like, oh, are you like the Westboro Baptist Christian, or are you like the Joel Osteen Christian, or like, where do you fall? And I'm always like, how do I explain this? Like, nor I think I'm in the normal camp. I mean, like, it's, it's hard sometimes to, like, get people to figure out, but... People are watching and they want to know, right? They, they want to know how we behave. They want to know how we think. They want to know who we belong to. And this can be tricky to navigate, especially in our culture, because our culture is really ready to cancel people at a moment's notice. If you don't think the way they think, if you don't behave the way they believe you're supposed to behave, if you don't associate with the right group, you're just out. You're just out. You have, you have no group to think with or behave with or belong with. Thankfully, the church isn't that way or shouldn't be that way, but our culture is very much that way. I've had plenty of people come up to me as I, as I work even at Lowe's now, and they're, they're, they're telling me about a picture they saw on my social media, and I'm like, when did I post that? Like, they're going back. They're looking. They're trying to see, have you been this type of person for a long time? Are you really as consistent as you say you are? Are you really believe the way that you do? They're also watching things about what you are and aren't sharing. When events go on in our country, they want to know where you fall on this issue. Did you stay silent on it? Did you speak up on it? Did you fall on this side of the line or the other side of the line? They really want to know where you fit. And it's tough in our culture because it seems like every issue now is a hot topic issue, right? There's nothing that can, that can go unaddressed, or there's nothing that, that you can be silent on. And even if you aren't silent, you're going to get eaten up. And if you are silent, you're gonna, you, it's almost like you can't win. But this is the culture that we find ourselves in, and they're watching how you behave in the situations you find yourself in. And I think we've seen this very well over the course of at least the past few weeks. I think it's gone on a lot longer than that, uh, specifically in the last couple of days. If your social media feed is anything like my social media feed, like there is a war going on on social media. Like part of it's kind of comical, right? You like get on, and you're like, oh, oh, whoa. Like w there's this back and forth between these groups of people and there doesn't seem to be really like a middle ground. There's like this side and this side and nobody wants to talk about the middle and then this side sharing false information and then that side sharing false information and when you call that side about, about their false information then they're calling you out about your false information and I think you can even hear the exhaustion as I talk about it. It is exhausting. You've got, uh, you've got people arguing about the left is this and the right is this and here's how we feel about guns and, 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 and this is what a woman is and oh, by the way, it's Pride Month and gas prices are this and then abortion, which I think we got a great win in on Friday, but, but if you look at your social media feed, I don't know that you feel that way. There's a lot going on and, and, and there's more on that list even and it's exhausting. I was reading some, some statistics about our culture today. Our culture is receiving and processing more information on a daily basis than ever before in the history of the world. If you are a Twitter fan, there are 6,000 tweets that go out every single minute. 
No wonder I can never catch up on my Twitter feed, right? I'm like, it just scrolls and scrolls and scrolls. 6,000 tweets a minute. 2.85 billion people are on Facebook. I think even if you count the bots in that, there's a lot of people on Facebook. YouTube comes in a close second with 2.2 billion subscribers. Facebook says that 98% of the people using their platform do so from a mobile device. And I didn't really do the math on that because that's not really my strong suit. I was told there'd be no math this morning, but that seems like a lot of people. Nine, 98% of 2.85 billion are staring at their screen to get access to Facebook. How many of you uh, are iPhone users? This isn't to call you out about not being an iPhone user. Just every, yeah, okay, there's quite a few of us. Good, you're on God's side. Okay, so <laughs> there, <laughs> every Sunday morning, how many of you get that great screen time report? Did any of you get that? Yeah, like 9 a.m., right? So my wife and my family and I, we go to the 8.30 service over at the Davenport campus. And at 9 a.m., without fail, every single Sunday morning, that screen time report comes through. And I personally think it's kind of rude because we've done confession at like 8.45, and then that comes through at 9 a.m., and the whole process just seems ruined, right? Like, that would have been helpful. To, like, here it was great, right? It had already come through. I felt the weight of it. We confessed. It's gone. I'm, I have a clean conscience before you this morning, but... Every single time that goes off, it always causes me to hang my head a little bit. Seeing how much time I stared at this little pocket idol over the course of a week. I wanted to be honest with you as I stand behind here. I average about three and a half hours a day staring at this little device. Three and a half hours a day. There's all kinds of excuses I could give you. Oh, I was doing work, or I was chatting with my wife, or I was catching up with my kids, or, uh, uh, or my daughter. She was just watching it you know, on the way back from a game or whatever. Like, that had to be a good hour right there that she ate up. Like, it wasn't all me. And, and I could give you all kinds of excuses, but the truth is that a lot of time is spent staring at this little, this little screen, this little box. This one I did do some math on, and it made me mad. If you're quick at math and you put together that 3.5 hours a day over the course of seven, hour, or seven days a week, that's just over 24 hours last week that I stared at a screen. I spent a whole day's worth of time staring at a screen last week. And to be honest with you, it was the week before that, and it was the week before that, and it was the week before that. It just keeps going and it sucks our life up. And I was thinking about like, well, what am I doing? Like I'm spending a whole day's worth of time every single week, hearting videos. Like just, mm, that was so nice, great video, it was fun. I'm sending care emojis, right? The little hug heart emoji to people's posts that are, you know, they're going through a hard time. I'm trying to make witty comments. If you know me, that's kind of my thing. I, I'm sharing videos with my wife or sharing videos with my sons or I'm sharing videos with friends and getting them to waste more of their time. And it's just a time waste. And I would say the scary part is how easy it is. How easy it is. You just start looking at it and you just keep looking. You just keep scrolling. I'm not really worried about uh, uh, what's going on in the world around me. I'm just, I'm just scrolling, just mindlessly. I think the scary part is that scripture says, it, scripture tells us that we become what we behold. Now I'm not necessarily worried about becoming a phone but I am worried about becoming the type of person that has the values in which I'm ingesting during those three and a half hours a day. Because I would love to tell you that I'm just watching like Christian videos and, uh, you know, uh, Hillsong songs. Are they even real anymore? I don't know. Uh, but 
I'm just doing all this Christian stuff and I'm just sharing scripture. And, but that's not the truth. The, the truth of it is I'm wasting a lot of my day. And I think for most of us, you would probably be in the same boat. We are, we are, watching, we are watching more and we are taking in more than we ever have before. And it's not good for us. We're beholding things that are, that are questioning who we stand with and who we walk with and who we sit with. And it's also concerning about where our wisdom is coming from. Here's the big deal about it. I think the big question that's being asked by the psalmist today and even our society today concerning these three areas of thinking, behaving, and belonging is really a question of who is your allegiance to? Which master are you serving? Are we serving God or are we serving ourselves? Because if I'm honest about my screen time, I'm serving myself. I'm not serving God during that time. I'm serving myself. And I think for whatever category it is for you, it could be reading, it could be shows, it could be whatever. We're filling our time with something else and we're losing track of who we're serving. The psalmist would have us to believe that our allegiance to the gospel will actually lead us to happiness. And he also goes on to say the flip is true. If your allegiance is to the world or the society, you will not find happiness. You will not find the blessed life that he's talking about. And I think that may sound oversimplified and nuanced uh, in the culture that we live in, but this is exactly what scripture teaches. It sounds nuanced because it's not what the world teaches. The world teaches us that you can get to the place that you want to go by doing the things that you want to do. You can live your best life now. Girl, you could just wash your face or you could subscribe to the subtle art of not... Well, maybe I shouldn't finish that one. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Even some of what is being toted as Christian literature today is anti-gospel, has anti-gospel things in it. And I think this is why what the psalmist is pointing to is so important. Let's look at verse 2. Thinking about who you stand with, who you walk with, and who you sit with, verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. The three negatives in verse 1 about uh, what not to do should lead us to what to do. The psalmist is saying, use this tool right here to build your life upon. Use this tool to shape your life. Now, for us, we have this tool in front of us, right? To the crowd that the, the psalmist is talking to, they would have had much of this actually just memorized. They didn't have the book written down. They weren't walking around with their pocket Bible. They didn't have a pocket idol to carry around that had the Bible on it, right? Like they were just going and had it memorized. They were learning it in school. Their parents were teaching it to them. They would have had it memorized. You see, there's something different about this book than any other book you will ever hold open on your lap. This book has the power to do things that no other book has the power to do. As you sit there with it opened or pulled up on your phone, this, this book gives us more than just good advice or helpful ideas on how to navigate a dangerous world. It literally gives us a path to life, a path to wholeness, a path to redemption. True freedom lies within these pages. No other book can we say that about. And there are great other books out there, right? Lord of the Rings is out there. Harry Potter is out there. Those are the only two that Pastor Justin always talks about. That's about all I know about them. But there, there are plenty of other great books out there that many of you have probably read before and maybe even had good experiences in, but they do not have the power within them to do what this book can do. And yet, as we think about that, how often do we find ourselves meditating on it day and night as the psalmist prescribes for the happy man? 
That doesn't mean that you and I are walking around with our Bible open all the time. Instead of having our phone, now we'll just have our Bibles open and we'll just walk everywhere. When we get to work, we just thud it down on the, the desk, right? Or when we're at home, it's just, you have the big family Bible. Does anybody still have those? Those are great, right? Like the big, huge family Bible in the middle of the coffee table at home or in the middle of the dinner table. That's not necessarily what the psalmist is speaking about. That's not what I'm speaking about. But it does mean that it's at the very least on our mind throughout the day and throughout the night. That there are words from this book hidden in our heart and in our mind that when things are going on throughout the day, we connect back to it. For most of us, most specifically myself, because I know myself the best in the room, this is not true of me. And I'd be willing to bet it's probably not true for you. And I think this is the reason for some of the rampant anxiety in our culture. The, the, the thoughts of depression that are plaguing our culture right now, our lack of concern for our neighbors, our often feelings of hopelessness, our quickness to grab a drink, our endless scrolling on social media, our desire to work just a little bit more before coming home, or maybe a little bit more once we get home. It's, a, it's the reason for our mile-long list of shows in our queue, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, whatever the streaming service is, Paramount, whatever's out there. And I believe it's because this book isn't being meditated on and, and, and we have almost numbed ourselves to the gospel in a sense. What we're thinking, how we're behaving and, and where we're belonging have been, become like an afterthought to our life because of the hectic, chaotic, busy world that we live in. Our natural go-to response is usually to find anything and everything else to make us happy. And when that fails, we just move on to the next thing. When our kids aren't making us happy, well, I don't really know what you would move on to if your kids aren't making you happy. Like maybe, maybe it's just the TV or something else. Like we just find something else. You see this in our culture. When a, when a marriage isn't going the way that people think the marriage should go, the first response is, let's end it. I just fell out of love. He just, I just don't know him the way I used to know him anymore. She, she changed once the kids came along. There's, there's all these excuses. There's all these things. There's not a fighting for any of the, the, the thoughts that go on in our head or, or, or a ownership of our behavior or where we're belonging. Paul Tripp in his book titled All said that we've lost our all in the things of God and replaced it with the all for created things rather than the creator of all things. He goes on to say, we are hardwired for all. And when, we're, when we remove ourselves from the law of the Lord, as the psalmist said here, we make other lesser things our pursuit. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's tough. Our vision is too small and our discipline is lacking when it comes to God and, it's, and his word. Now, I do want to be careful with us this morning because I think it'd be very easy for you and I to hear a list of things to do and that very quickly becomes legalism. If I'm not doing this, then I'm not a good Christian. If I'm not reading my Bible this many times a day or a week, I'm not a good Christian. If I'm not praying to God this amount of time, then I'm not a good Christian. And that's not what the Christian life looks like. In fact, the psalmist doesn't actually even talk about an amount of time. He just talks about who we're sitting with, who we're standing with, and, and where, we're, where we're belonging. This isn't a call for you to go home and begrudgingly open your Bible up and just read through it. And, and though I would say you can start there, you can't stay there. 
Maybe you do go home and you begrudgingly say, man, it's been a while since I opened up this Bible. I want to I see what it has to say. That may be an okay spot to start, but you can't stay there. There's an old saying that says, rules without relationship equals rebellion. Rules without relationship equal rebellion. If you have little to no relationship with the one who wrote this book, you're likely to rebel against him. But the one who wrote this book is telling you a lot about himself and a lot about yourself. And he's telling you the best way to live your life. He's telling you about a relationship between you and him that is possible, that's been made possible by him. And one of the primary ways to build a relationship is to find ourselves spending time with the one that we were created to do everything with and do everything for. Think of it this way. If I was having a relational issue with my spouse today, my go-to response would not be to pack up all my stuff and close up everything and drive off from her. My go-to response would be to go to her and listen to her and reconnect with her. I would plan a date night. I would write her a note. I would talk to her face to face. I would hear about her thoughts, her worries, her joys, her wants, her needs, anything else in between. Knowing that the majority of those things that I'm gonna hear are probably my fault. She didn't move, I moved. And the same is true of our relationship with God. He has not moved. He has not changed. He has not gone anywhere else. It's us that have chosen to chase after other things. It's us that have chosen to search after anything and everything else to make us happy when he has told us he is the one who will make us happy. Our blessedness, our happiness is at stake in the midst of this. If this were any other relationship, we'd put in the work. I'm asking you this morning, will we put in the work? The psalmist goes on to say that when we do these things, we're specifically meditating on God's word day and night, that God's word becomes a delight to us. It's a treat to us. It's something we actually enjoy doing. And I know that you're probably thinking about the book of Numbers right now and all those names that are listed there. And you're like, how in the world is that a joy? I can't even pronounce them. Like I need like a hooked on phonics lesson before I go through that book. It is a joy because we're seeing a lineage of people that God knew by name. That should be encouraging for us, especially in a world of as many people as we have right now that the God of the world would know our name. That's good news. That's a treat. It's a calm and a chaotic world. It's a better word about yourself than that that the world is giving you. Listen to this. When I was in high school uh, and junior high, I ran cross country. And I ran with this kid named Richie. And Richie was... was pretty much one of my best friends. We were similar in running ability. We liked the same kind of music. Our conversations came pretty easy. We were leaders on the team. Uh, and Richie and I were just kind of side by side in everything we did. We even worked at Domino's together for a time. We got in trouble at work. We were, we were supposed to hand out the coupons and like put them on people's doors. But we like didn't want to walk up to people's doors. So we just put them in their mailboxes. Apparently that's like a federal offense. Uh, so we didn't know that, but that was Richie and I, like we were just that close that we did dumb things together. One day before a big track meet, or excuse me, cross country meet, what happens is if you've seen any type of sports ever, they always like huddle up before, right? And they encourage each other. And yeah, you even do that in cross country, like you're encouraging each other to go run. Uh, but that's what we were doing <laughs> and talking about how great this run was about to be. And in the midst of that, Richie uh, began to repeat this phrase over and over and over again. He said, greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I had no idea what Richie was talking about. I had never heard him say anything like that before. I actually thought he might be on something. Like, it was like, okay, Rich. And we went on, we ran the race. It was good. We got done. And afterwards on the bus, I said, Richie, what in the world was that you were talking about before the race? 
He was like, man, I went to church this weekend and this pastor was talking about greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I was not a Christian in high school. I didn't know much about God in high school. We went every now and then. I had no idea. There was never really a time I didn't know who God was, but I had no idea what to do with Jesus, much less what his words meant. But when Richie said that, I never forgot it. It's 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. And even as a non-believer, I knew there was some type of power in that verse. I actually went and wrote it on my shoes. First John 4, 4. Like, it was a kind of a cliche thing to do, but I think God used it in my life to kind of open up my mind and begin to open up my heart to the things of God. But it was Richie repeating that over and over and over again, and it never left me. And that verse was a treat to me, even as an unbeliever. Even as somebody who had no no idea about the things of God, it was a treat to me. And now even more so today, it makes, it made, and it makes the world seem less chaotic. When I am believing that there is one who is in me that is greater than he that is in the world. There is, there, God lives inside of me and is more powerful and has overcome the world. And he is greater. Anything the world brings against me, I know that there is one in me that has a greater power. That should be a treat to us. That's, that's hiding. That's meditating on God's word day and night. It's having those little um, uh, nuggets, so to speak, that we can grab a hold of and pull out. I say that because I think that part of what it looks like to meditate on God's word and to delight in it is because it can literally carry us through things that are going on in our life. Because there's a lot of times we rely on our own strength. Right? We rely on ourselves. we rely on our own knowledge, we rely on the things we have inside of us, and the scripture is calling us to rely on the word of God to get us through the day. Now, listen how he describes the person who delights in the law and meditates on it day and night. Verse three says this, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So think about what's being said here. There's a tree that's purposefully planted, purposefully planted by streams of water. Notice where the tree gets its nutrients from. The tree gets its nutrients from a source that is outside of itself. The tree, it wasn't an accident that this tree was planted by the stream. It was intentionally done so that it would have a stream that it would get its nutrients from. This tree is getting nutrients from a source outside of itself. You see, this tree didn't wake up every single morning and pull itself up by its bootstraps, so to speak, and make everything happen. Like it wasn't just out there, it was like, you know what, today I'm just gonna reach for a little bit more dew off the ground. Today I'm gonna see if a few more bugs can live on me and I can get nutrients from them. Like, it, the, I don't know if trees even think, but anyway, it's not, it's not doing that. It was intentionally planted in this place and its source of power is coming from something outside of itself. In and of itself, this tree is powerless to provide itself water, or any other natural resource. And yet because of where it's rooted, it's supplied for. Because of where the tree is rooted, it's supplied for. Notice what happens when it gets the nutrients it needs. It yields fruit in its season. You see, the tree isn't out here just killing it all four seasons. Like it's producing apples this season. It's got oranges the next season. It's got pears the next season. It's a lemon tree that other season. Like, no, 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 no. It produces its fruit when it's time to yield. And it does that because of where it's rooted. I want you to see that because it's a picture of this tree isn't constantly flourishing year round and people are constantly coming to it and taking apples off it or taking oranges off of it. And it's just like this ultimate tree. No, no, no. It has seasons of life. It has seasons where things are plucked from it. It has seasons where the leaves fall off. 
It has seasons where it is producing fruit, and it has seasons where it's just simply a tree, just being. The analogy here is pretty straightforward, and it is a question to us about where are we planted? Are the streams of life giving nutrients to us in the place that we find ourselves right now? It's not a small question. It's a question about where you sit, where you stand, and where you belong. It's about what's providing nutrients to the things that I think, the way that I behave, and the places I belong. It's asking about where you live, where you work, where you play. It's asking about your hometown, your livelihood, your crew, so to speak. Something is watering your root system in all the places that you find yourself, and that something will determine your blessedness. That's something will determine your happiness. If you, also, if you look back at the text, it goes on to say, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. If you know anything about trees, like literally if you've ever even just seen a tree, you know that trees experience all kinds of things. They experience everything from weather to kids climbing on them to birds nesting in them. People hang lights on them. The psalmist is showing us that while this tree will experience many things over the course of its life, many things over the course of its life, that it has freedom from the potentially crippling environment around it and the potentially damaging things that could happen to it. Again, all because of the source that is providing this tree its nutrients, all because of where it's planted. It doesn't mean the tree won't, won't experience things, good and bad, but it will withstand all of it because of where it's planted and rooted. That's a great analogy for our life. The only way we will withstand the things that this world is going to throw at us is because of where we're rooted and where we're planted and what is watering the, the root system of our life. Now, the rest of the verses don't really go so well. I actually wish the psalmist would have started here because be, to be honest with you, this is like perfect coffee cup portion of scripture, right? Like put that on a poster. Like Sam could probably draw us up a, like a pretty cool tattoo, right? Of like, uh, there's like a little tree and it's by a stream and there's some cool roots coming down that are, that are going deep. And uh, maybe uh, there is um, some, like some letters carved in the tree just so we know that it went through a few things, but it's like pretty, right? There's a sun in the background and the tree's got apples on it. And it's a good picture. It's, it's great for the office room, but that's not how the psalmist ends it. The psalmist actually goes on to tell us about the second way of life, and we would call this the way to death. If you look at verse four, it says this, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. That's super encouraging. Notice here that the psalmist is not even talking about the fruit of the per that the person produces that does not know God. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Life without God looks far different than a life with God. We've already seen it here. You see that the life with God is rooted, planted by a stream, is getting nutrients from outside of itself to, to nourish it. The other side is not so much. It simply says that their life is chaff. He is chaff. It's not necessarily a word we use all that much anymore. Commentator Derek Kidner says this. He says, chaff is, in such a setting as this, the ultimate in what is rootless, weightless, and useless. Rootless, weightless, 
and useless. You could picture a child uh, in the yard picking up a dandelion and kind of blowing the top of it, right? And you see all the little white pieces just kind of scurry and they go and they're just gone in a short amount of time. Thankfully, we live here in, in Iowa and, and Illinois and we get uh, this farm life all around us, right? And after you've seen the corn be harvested, there's all these like leaves that kind of stay behind and they just die and they wither away. And a couple days later, you could step on them and the wind would blow and it would literally blow off. That is showing us the picture of what the psalmist is saying of what happens to the wicked. The wicked are those that do not know Jesus, do not know the God of the universe. It's not a happy picture of what happens to these people. This is bleak. There's no hope mentioned here. This is a tree that was instead of being planted by the streams of water, chose to plant itself in a desert and be its own source of nutrients. This tree decided to produce fruit on its own. And then this tree wonders, tree wonders why its leaves are always withering and why it has to try to replant itself year after year after year. And then the same things happen to it when it finds itself in that place because the tree is the same no matter where it takes itself. And this is true for the people you and I live around that don't know the Lord. They're constantly trying to reinvent themselves. They're constantly wondering why they have the same set of problems. They're constantly moving in and out of this place or that place and wondering why the cycle repeats. In the end, this tree that's being spoken of here, it will be blown away. In fact, it will not even stand next to the tree whose root system was watered by a source outside of itself. Look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse 5 starts with this word, therefore. The psalmist is saying, because of the choices this, this person or these people have made, it will not go well for them on the day of judgment. Termination and separation is the future for this group of people. And as I say that this morning, I hope that that would cause us to actually feel the weight of judgment coming for the people around us. This shouldn't be taken lightly. I think it's easy for us to look at ourselves as the tree planted by the, by the stream, right? And be like, yeah, God's watering my root system. And there's some things I could be better at, but I know where I'm going. And, but there are people around us who don't know that and don't have that same security. They don't have that root system. I'm talking about people like our neighbors, our coworkers. Maybe it's your doctor. For many of us, it's our family members. It could be your mom, our dad, our brother, a sister, Maybe for some, even a spouse. This, what the psalmist is talking about here, verses four through six, should not be our hope for anyone. It should never be our hope that somebody literally gets snuffed out and blown away, never to be thought of or mentioned again, to be blotted out, to live in termination and separation. You see, for both the believer in the room and those who do not yet believe, we do know that there is one who has come to make this life of happiness ours. There is one who has come for those who have already rooted themselves by the streams and for those who have not. There is one who has taken the place of sinners that is every single one of us and died a death we deserve. There is one who while we were out here trying to make our own way, forge our own path, make everybody else happy, produce our own fruit that died for us. The truth of us as human beings is that there will be a day when this life comes to an end. I don't know if you've looked at the statistics on death. They're pretty alarming. 
one out of every one person dies. You have a 100% chance of death. That's true for every single one of us, for every coworker we talked about, every neighbor we talked about, every other person that comes in our life, they will, there will come a day when every single one of us will die. We don't know how long that will be. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be years off. We don't know. My prayer personally is that the Lord would come really quickly and get us out of here. But if he tarries, we'll face death. But there can be hope in the midst of it. We do know that there is one who has come to make this life of happiness, this life of blessing possible for everyone. Scripture is clear this morning that there are two ways. One leads to life and one leads to chaff. There is no other option. There is no other way. There's not 30 different ways to get your life together. There is two ways. And today I pray that, that you would be blessed and that you would follow Jesus. Christians, I pray that as we enter into this time of com communion that we would repent of the way we've thought, the way we've believed, the way we've behaved, excuse me, and the way we've belonged. Would we repent of the way we've thought, behaved, and belonged and return to Jesus? Return to Jesus. You are a tree that's rooted and planted by that stream. You have all the nutrients you need for, for godliness, for flourishing. Would we repent of those times when we're trying to do it on our own? For those here in the room today that have not cried out to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, today, Scripture does say that you are like chaff, but Scripture also says that there, you too can be a tree that's planted by that stream you too can receive the nutrients that are provided from somewhere else. So instead of taking communion this morning, I would ask that you take Jesus, confess your sins, receive him alone today. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you did not mince words here and make this some type of guessing game of, of how to find our way to Jesus. You have told us what the blessed life looks like. You have sent Jesus on our behalf to make that life possible for us. And God, for those of us in the room that know you as our Lord and Savior today, may we reorient ourselves around the truth of the gospel. May we begin to think about what, the way we've thought. May we look at the way we've behaved. May we look at the, the places that we are belonging. And may we return to Jesus. God, I pray that, that our root system would be watered well so that we can produce fruit in our seasons. Father, for those of us in the room today that do not know you, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds to the things of Jesus, that you would help us to know that there is no amount of work on our behalf that can make us anything else besides chaff. But Jesus has done that work for us. May we allow Jesus to take our sins upon himself. May we ask for forgiveness. May we repent for the way we've been living our life. Repent for trying to do it all ourselves. when you have already done the work. May we see you as more glorious and more beautiful this morning. May we run to your arms. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.